Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. But when Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all of the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are not the least among the rulers of Judea, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, he determined from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. When they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and were told they fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. I want to start out this morning by pointing out something that might be obvious to you. And it might not be obvious because we're all really familiar with the Christmas story. Most of us have heard this section of scripture, whether we went to church or not, since we were kids. It's part of the Christmas lore, the Christmas story. The wise men from the East come. But have you really thought about that? Like from an objective standpoint? Like can you find a more bizarre, mysterious group of men in all of Scripture? I'm hard-pressed to do so. There might be a couple people in the Old Testament where you kind of like raise an eyebrow when you come across them. But these wise men, if you're just working your way through Scripture and then you find... Jesus is being born and wise men from the east come, you would be scratching your head in confusion. Like the questions, they abound. Who were they? Where did they come from? Where is the east? Why would they have even cared that a king of the Jews had been born, yet alone travel so far to worship him? How did they know to look for a star? that would somehow indicate this king had been born? Why were these men almost two years late? Why did they not know to go to Bethlehem, instead go to Jerusalem? And what's with the gifts, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, before we attempt to answer these questions, let's begin with what we know from the text. Without a doubt, what we know about these guys. First, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, and that gives us a couple clues. The Greek word wise men is magos, which can be translated as magi. This was the name given in the Old Testament and in the Orient to describe men who were teachers or priests, physicians, astrologers, seers, soothsayers, even in some instances, sorcerers. We find this phrase in the Old Testament in three different places, Genesis 41 and Exodus 7, 
The phrase is used to describe the counselors, the inner circle of Pharaoh, the Egyptian king. In Esther, the phrase wise men is used to describe the advisors of the Persian king Xerxes. In Daniel, once again, we find wise men being part of Nebuchadnezzar's inner circle. Now, since the passage tells us they were wise men from the east, we can rule out them coming from Egypt, which is due south. Which means that in all likelihood, these wise men, if we place it in the context of Scripture, came from the remnants of the Babylonian Medo-Persian empires. So we have wise men from the east coming to Jerusalem, searching for the king of the Jews. Now, though these men were very likely pagan Gentiles, it's obvious at some point in their past, at some point in their history, for some reason, that they had been imparted with a Hebrew religious heritage. I mean, why else do you look for the king of the Jews to begin with? They understood in some way that the king of the Jews, this Jewish king, would be unique, would be special, would be worthy of their praise and their gifts, which is why they traveled a thousand miles through rough desert terrain to find him. So we have wise men from the east coming to Jerusalem, searching for the king of the Jews because, the text tells us, they had seen his star in the east and had come to worship. Now, while it was customary for one nation to send a delegation to pay homage, respect, when a son of another king from another nation was born, the text tells us that they're traveling with gifts to do more than just honor or pay respect to a foreign king. The word Matthew uses here is worship, which suggests that the wise men had come not to pay homage, not to pay respect, but to bow their knee in an expression of profound reverence. Now, at this point, there are two immediate questions that arise, at least from my mind as I process things. First, why were these wise men looking for the birth of a Jewish king? And secondly, how did a star indicate this timing, the timing of his birth? Now, to effectively answer this question, from my estimation, you have to rewind the clock about 500 years to a foreign land and a prophet, a prophet named Daniel. Now, I'll give you a little bit of the cliff notes, a little of the history here. But following an elongated season of rebellion against God, resisting the warnings of God, God ends up using the Babylonian empire to be his vessel of judgment for the nation of Judah. Not only did Jerusalem fall from the siege and the temple was destroyed, but the Jews were dispelled. They were exiled from their land, dispersed throughout the empire. Daniel and his friends find themselves in Babylon as a result. And in Babylon, Daniel, who was a very spiritual man, who loved the Lord with all of his heart, as he's in exile, he's concerned that by their wickedness, by their sin, by their rebellion, maybe the Jewish people had in some ways permanently vacated their privilege as the chosen people of God. And this was a great burden for Daniel. Is it over? Is God done with us? 
Has he cast us to the wayside? Does he have any more plans? What about his promises? And because this weighed on his heart, as you read through the book of Daniel, God, to calm his fears, allowed Daniel to peer into the future prophetically in order to see that not only did God still have a plan for the Jews, not only was God not done with them, but God allowed Daniel to see something glorious, something amazing, something radical, the greatest demonstration to the reality that God was not done with Israel, and that was the fact that there was coming a king. Daniel, as he looks into the future, is able to see that this king, this savior, this promised one, he sees him entering Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, exactly 483 years from the decree to restore and build Jerusalem. Now, I'm not going to get into what we traditionally know as Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy, other than to say Daniel sees that from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, it would be 483 years to the day that the Messiah, the king, would appear in Jerusalem. Daniel knows this. Now, interesting, that portion of this prophecy finds its fulfillment in a radical way. For on April 6, 32 AD, what took place? Historically, Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Exactly 483 years, or if you're using the Babylonian calendar, 173,880 days from King Artaxerxes' decree, which took place March 14th, 445 BC, to allow the Jewish people to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. It is one of the most amazing pieces of prophetic scripture that we have. Interesting, as Jesus is on the donkey coming in, remember what was taking place? They're pulling down palm branches and they're laying coats. And what are the people crying out? Hosanna, Hosanna, what? The king. The Pharisees start to rebuke Jesus to say, Jesus, you should tell them to be quiet. This is blasphemous. And what does Jesus say? He says, if I told them to be quiet, even the rocks would cry out. Why? For this is my day, a day prophesied by Daniel. Now, this is where this whole dynamic becomes interesting and relevant for our purposes. You're like, okay, Zach, cool. Nice little prophecy about Daniel, but follow with me. While Daniel had not only received prophetic insight concerning the future arrival of the Messiah, he had also proven to be such a valuable advisor for King Nebuchadnezzar that in Daniel chapter 2, verse 48, look at this section of scripture, we're told that the king promoted Daniel gave him many gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Now, is it an accident that wise men from the east had been specifically placed under Daniel's charge some 500 years earlier? And since Daniel knew when the Messiah, the king of the Jews, would be revealed to Israel, do you think it's a leap to assume that possibly he established an order of wise men charged with specific instructions to come to Bethlehem, to Jerusalem, to bring these gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Now, beyond giving an explanation for why the wise men from the east were interested in a Jewish king in the first place, Daniel's involvement 
would explain now why a star would have played such a pivotal role. One of the areas of expertise for the order of wise men was astrology. It was this way with the Egyptians, the Babylonians, and the Persians. So it is likely that Daniel, now knowing when the Messiah would be presented to Israel, was able to designate a specific star, mapping out its patterns using a complex algorithm where it would be positioned over Judea close to the birth of the Messiah. In many ways, the star and its movements tracked by the wise men over 500 years acted as a countdown. Now, since stars were used as navigational tools in the Orient, Daniel may have left behind instructions for these wise men to follow this special star approximately 400 and let's say 50 years following the coming decree of the Jews to rebuild Jerusalem. Don't forget, what did the wise men tell Herod in our passage? It wasn't that they had seen a star. They had seen his star in the east. Daniel's involvement would also explain why the wise men were late. You know, you know they were late, right? The traditional nativity scene actually gets it all wrong. My mom had, growing up, one of those porcelain sets, nativity sets that always sat on the mantle. And growing up as kids, part of the tradition was that we brought those porcelain pieces down. And as dad was reading the Christmas story, we would act it out and kind of learn it there on Christmas morning. Well, we tried to be very biblically correct at the Adams household. So in addition to putting baby Jesus up inside of Mary, because she has to birth him, we also moved the wise men across the living room because they're not there with the shepherds. So we had a really weird looking nativity. The wise men were up the stairs and then everybody else was down because it was gonna take them two years or so to get there. Like really, the wise men and the shepherds never cross paths, never once. They're approximately, most scholars think, about 18 months late, which would make sense because Daniel, Daniel knew when the Messiah would be presented, for sure, right? But he didn't know how old the Messiah would be. And so he has to kind of speculate. He has to kind of reason, maybe 30 years old, we'll subtract it back, 450, give or take. He has to use some math. We'll give him a pass. Note how Matthew begins his account. We're told that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men came. He also says that when they came, do we, do we find them in a stable? No. We're told that when they had come into the house, it would seem that Joseph had decided that living in a stable was not the best dynamic moving forward, nor was maybe moving back to, to, to Nazareth, and so they rent a house, pull out a lease, we're also told that when they do arrive, what do they see? You know, Luke says that when the shepherds came, they saw a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. But in this instance, the wise men, when they arrive, what do they see? The young child. Daniel, if he is involved, it would also explain to us why they bring such unique gifts. These gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, they were not accidental. They had very specific meaning, a very specific purpose. Gold was the gift of royalty. Frankincense 
was used almost exclusively by priests in the temple there in Israel in the worship of God. Myrrh, nothing more than a common burial spice, like bringing some embalming fluid. We're going to have a son here soon, this coming month. Don't bring me embalming fluid. Like, that's awkward. You see, if left to themselves, these wise men would not have brought these gifts. Maybe the gold, but not frankincense and myrrh. However, Daniel, who, once again, another bit of cliff note, is probably the most Christ-centric of all of the prophets in the Old Testament, maybe competing with Isaiah. But Daniel, knowing Christ, seeing the Messiah, knowing all of these things, having an intuition, these gifts make total sense for Daniel. Like Daniel knew that this king, that this king, this Messiah, the king of the Jews was, was deserving of gold. He knew the king would also be God incarnate, which fits with frankincense, the worship of God. And according to the same 70 weeks prophecy, Daniel also knew that this divine king would die for the sins of many, hence the myrrh. Gold for the king, frankincense for God, and myrrh for his death. Aside from providing a detailed explanation of the wise men, I think even if it's somewhat theoretical, it gives us a bit more of some context to these men, why they came, what were they thinking. There's another point that's often overlooked concerning this section of scripture that that's important, I think, to point out. Matthew begins by mentioning that this star led the wise men roughly a thousand miles from the east into Judea. And then something weird happens. It's not specifically stated in the text, but it is inferred that as they're following this star and as they're getting closer, it's pinging, they're following. Bethlehem is a suburb of Jerusalem. So they know where they're going. They know, they know there's a big city. They're getting closer and closer and then the star disappears. As a matter of fact, we're even told that after they have an encounter with Herod, that when Herod told them that the baby was to be born in Bethlehem, we're, set, we're told that then behold the star which they had seen went before them, which indicates that the star that had led them went away after they interact with Herod that star that they had seen now reappears. Like from the text, as they're getting close, the star vanishes. And what do they do? Well, the most logical thing possible. They're looking for a newborn king of the Jews. Now they don't know exactly where to go. So why don't you go to the current king of the Jews? That being Herod. See, as far as the wise men knew, Herod would have been in the know. He's the current king. Surprisingly, he wasn't aware, which leads us to another component of our story, and that is King Herod, who's I think kind of left out of this whole narrative to, to a large extent when he should be mentioned. King Herod, also known historically as Herod the Great, fascinating character. He's not a Jew. He's actually an Arab by birth. He's an Edomite. He had been granted the title King of Judea by the Roman Senate later confirmed by Caesar Augustus himself. Herod was sadistic. He was paranoid. He was brutal. But with all that being said, Herod was also strangely religious. 
You see, approximately 50 years before Herod had been born, another Jewish man by the name of John Maccabeus conquered the area or the kingdom known as Edom. And one of his first acts, he required that the Edomites do one of two things, either leave or convert to Judaism. Convert to Judaism. That means that they would have to be circumcised and then adhere to all of the Jewish laws and customs. Beyond developing and maintaining a good rapport with the Jews living under his dominion, it's important to realize that Herod the Great, as an Edomite proselyte, really wanted to be accepted by the religious establishment there in Judea. Josephus, who's a first century historian, actually documents this about Herod the Great, that he longed for the acceptance of the Jews under his control, which also seems to explain why he spent an enormous amount of blood, sweat, and treasure to do what? Rebuild the Jewish temple, making it one of the great wonders of the ancient world. So here's Herod the Great, who is religious, but he's also sadistic. He's this weird dichotomy of sorts. Who cherished being king? Herod relished the power that being king provided him to the point that he was determined above everything else to remain control, to remain in power, to remain on the throne no matter what. History tells us that because he was so paranoid, anyone that seemed to be a threat, he had killed. His second wife, he had killed. Two of his sons, first two born, he had killed. Herod's about to die. He knows that death is coming. He's gonna die at any day. Word leaks that Herod has, has passed away. So his third born son, who's now the oldest because the other two have been killed, throws a party because now he's gonna be king. Cool, dad died, I'm king. Problem, Herod's not actually dead yet. So what does he do? He has that son also killed. Rumor has it that he so wanted praise and adoration upon his death that he commanded to have a bunch of the priests all killed when he died so that there would be mourning. Knowing no one would cry for him when he died, he thought, I'll kill a bunch of people so everyone mourns and they just think it's about me. He was a weird, crazy kind of dude, but can you imagine his reaction? how troubled he must have been when a group of foreign dignitaries, wise men from the East, arrive searching for whom? A newborn king of the Jews. Now, why is that significant? What makes this significant is that a born king was the ultimate threat to Herod's power and control. A born king would have the rightful claim to the throne that he had taken by force and coercion, the throne he had worked so hard to keep in his grasp, a born king would immediately erode his standing with the Jewish people, the people he looked to for acceptance. A born king would place his entire position in peril. What's interesting about our story is that Matthew tells us that Herod, he doesn't brush off the request of these wise men. Instead, Matthew's clear that Herod did what? He took their, their inquiry very seriously. They come, we're in search 
of the king of the Jews, the newborn king. So Herod gathers the chief priests, the scribes of the people together, and look at what he, he inquires about. He asks them where the Christ was to be born. Note he doesn't say Christ, but uses this, he doesn't say king, but uses this word Christ, which is the ultimate Latin translation of the Greek word that we get from the Hebrew word Messiah. This word Christ is the indicator of this long-awaited Jewish promised king. He uses this word, which seems to reveal that Herod, as a religious man, as a proselyte, as someone that has grown up in Judaism, he understood the messianic prophecies of Scripture. Herod recognized that a born king at this point in Jewish history could be no one else but the Christ, the promised Messiah. Notice Herod inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. This word inquired indicates he demanded. Like, I need to know now. And so after consulting with the prophecies of Micah, the chief priests, the scribes, they returned with an answer. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, that's where the Christ will be born, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are not the least among the rulers of Judea. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now let's just quickly recap the progression of our text. The star leads the wise men to Jerusalem. It, it then disappears. It's the wrong location. That's not where the king of the Jews has been born. The wise men logically turn to King Herod for advice, but Herod's clueless. Doesn't know anything about a newborn king of the Jews. So he consults the religious leaders of the day. These men don't have a ready answer. So they consult with scripture and determine that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem, which upon receiving this detail, the wise men set out. What happens? The star now magically reappears, leading them not just to Bethlehem, right? Because you get to Bethlehem, you still got to find the baby. Leads them specifically to the house that Jesus was living in. So we should ask, why the deliberate detour? I mean, if the star had the ability, because this is a miraculous star, whatever. If the star had the ability to lead them to Bethlehem, to the house that Jesus is living in, why does it disappear? Why does it leave them going to Herod? Why does it leave them in Jerusalem? You know, I think it's safe to say it's, it's not as though the wise men's 4G LTE access to the star entered a dead zone. It's not like they get close and they drop the signal. They're like, these darn cell phones. We're trying to find the king. No, I think the only plausible conclusion, and this is what makes our story interesting, I think adds a deeper dynamic. The only plausible conclusion you can reach is that God wanted the star to lead the wise men to Jerusalem before leading them on to Bethlehem. And God's sovereignty, we can assume that he intentionally led the wise men to Jerusalem, I think for two reasons. First, the religious leaders needed to know the Messiah had been born. Why? So that they would be without excuse. But secondly, and our more specific point of interest, Herod. Herod needed to know. Guess what, bud? You're not the king. 
This throne that you're sitting on, oh, it's not yours. This power you're holding on to, uh-uh. You know, Herod would die the same year that this would take place. I think the wise men are led to this location because Herod needed to know a rightful king existed. The supporting cast of Christmas, each equipped with the same good news. In Bethlehem, that Christ had come, a savior for the world. The wise men, King Herod, they all had the same amount of revelation. That's a truth to our passage. They all had the same amount of revelation from God. Sure, the wise men had been given the star, but they had recounted that revelation to Herod. We'd seen a star in these, we'd come to worship. A king has been born. Where is the king? They go to scripture. Everyone, Herod and the wise men, all had the same amount of revelation. In Bethlehem, the Christ has been born, the savior of the world. And yet, while their knowledge of such things was the same, was their reaction? Now, you see, what's interesting is to compare and contrast these wise men and Herod, knowing they have the same revelation, but they have two dramatically different reactions. On one end, the wise men from the east had seen the star that marked his birth. From far they came with exceeding joy. For what purpose? To worship the king of kings. Matthew tells us that not only had the wise men acted upon whatever revelation they had concerning the star, whether it was Daniel, whether it wasn't Daniel, whatever it was, they knew that the star, when it aligned, a king had been born, and they come. They travel. They come. They take the little they know, and they act upon it. They come into the house. They see the young child with Mary, his mother. They fall down. They worship. The scene, these wise men, these, these men of nobility, of wealth, of power, of prestige, traveling this great distance, coming in to this poor home with two poor parents to a poor child. And what they do, it's unbelievable, presenting these gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What was it, when it was all said and done, that made these men from the east wise men? The answer, while they had been given limited revelation, they acted on what they knew. They didn't ask for more. They didn't wait for more. They took what they knew was true, and they moved on. You know, faith. Faith is the spiritual muscle that enables a person to act upon what they know. It bridges our knowledge and our activity. And with that in mind, these wise men are without a doubt men of faith. A little bit of knowledge produced a big act of obedience and it made them wise. Without really knowing where they were going, without knowing what to expect upon their arrival, they travel a great distance through difficult terrain for one reason and one reason alone. A king had been born worthy of their worship. Now, on the flip side, 
although the wicked Herod knew that the Son of God had been born. Does he do what the wise men do? No. Instead, we're told he declines to come, prove bitter still, and he refuses to cede control. Matthew tells us that Herod, he requests that these wise men bring back word. You know, go to Bethlehem, figure it out, whatever you find, bring it back to me so I can come and worship him as well. And we recognize that there was a false pretense in that. A few verses later, Matthew 2, verse 16, we're told that when Herod ends up seeing that he was deceived by the wise men, you know, because they're warned in a dream to go a different way, he becomes exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and its all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Like, that's going to extremes, isn't it? Like, so we know what made these men from the East wise. They took what they knew to be true and they acted on it. So what had made Herod such a fool? Though like the wise men, he also had the understanding. He was in the loop, aware that the rightful king had been born in Bethlehem. He resists this revelation because he understood its implications. Herod realized that if this king really had been born, if this king indeed existed, a born king, he then would no longer have the right to be king himself. Herod refused to come and worship. He refused to bow his knee to Jesus, going even so far as launching this failed attempt on Jesus' life. Joseph ends up being warned in a dream, and him and Mary and the child go to Egypt. But why was he so resistant to Jesus? I think there's one reason and one reason alone. Herod was unwilling to vacate the throne and saw Jesus as a threat to his control. You look at it. You examine this passage. You note the supporting cast of Christmas. Are you aware the good news is for us the same? You and I, this morning, we're faced with Christ. The revelation of Jesus, who he is, what he came to do. We have the hindsight of the cross. So, the wise men, the wise man bows. Or, a man plays the foolish king. This idea of a wise man and a fool. Solomon actually plays on this concept all throughout the Proverbs in writing to his son Rehoboam, presenting words of wisdom, encouragement, exhortation, a handbook on how to live. If you study Proverbs, you'll note a comparison and contrast. Like if you're going to divide Proverbs into any type of systematic study, it is the wise man and the fool. All of humanity can really be broken into these two categories, the wise man and the fool. Jesus actually taught about the wise man and the fool. He defines the wise man and the fool in Matthew chapter 7. I'll read the passage for you. He says, therefore, whoever hears, hears these sayings of mine, his word, and does them. 
not just hearers of the word, doers of the word. I will liken that man or woman to a wise man who builds his house upon the rock. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But whoever hears these sayings of mine, my word, and doesn't do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. The wise man and a foolish king. The wise men and Herod. Please understand what this story teaches us. Like the one thing I want you to take away from this, this, this study. It's not what you know. That's not nearly as important as what you do with what you know. You know, in the, in the Bible Belt, Southern good old Christianity, everyone knows. You, you can catch the bum on the street to share the gospel with him. Oh, and he can quote scripture. He can tell you what he knows. Jesus is the son of God, came, died on the cross, three days later rose from the dead, living in my heart right now, right? We all know it. Religion knows. But do you know Christ? Do you know about him? Yeah, we do. But the greater question is, do you know him? You see, the wise man takes what he knows and lives on it acts upon it with character and integrity. Or we know it, but we reject it for its implications. Russian playwright Anton Chekhov, he, he stated it this way, knowledge is of no value unless you put that knowledge into practice. Now, this message clearly has an application for all of us. I think that that's clearly stated. I'll let you chew on it. In closing, I do want to take just a second, and I just want to address men for a moment. It is an inescapable reality that because men naturally rally around strength, men gravitate to the strongest man. <laughs> Only a fool willingly concedes to a weaker man. You know, a lot of times I think this is one of the biggest hang-ups for people, for men, when it comes to Christianity. Because we have allowed Christianity and our perspective of Jesus to become so neutered that men don't follow Jesus for a simple reason. They look at him, and he's presented as being weak. Meek and mild Jesus, the ultimate hippie, that Swedish guy with long, blowing, blonde hair, who happens to hover as he walks, and there's not a speck of dirt on that robe. We look at Jesus the way that he's often presented within Christianity, and we look at him as men and think, okay, I might not have this life thing figured out, but I'm gonna stay on the throne because I don't think that dude knows what he's doing. He seems weak. For men, we wanna follow someone that's, so we look at Jesus, and for a lot of men, who conclude he's weak and he's fragile, happen to completely overlook the fact that he's also a warrior and a king 
Yes, he comes in the Gospels, and he dies to save the sins of the world, but in the book of Revelation, he'll come on a white stallion swinging a sword to kill anyone that doesn't convert, like with a wicked thigh tattoo. Read about it. Like Jesus was a carpenter. He had bulging forearms. His son was tanned. His face was tanned from the sun. He was a tough dude, so tough that he goes into the temple, is ticked off with what's happening, and he doesn't walk over and say, guys, I really, um, I really think that this is not really what we should be doing. Um, could you guys please, you know? No, we're, we're told that he literally sits in the corner and he grabs some, uh, some, some things off the tree, some limbs, some branches, and he's sitting there just weaving a whip. And when he's done, there's no warning. He starts kicking over tables, swinging a whip, driving, violently driving out the money changers. That's a man. Jesus was such a man that when it was all said and done, other men were willing to forsake everything else in their lives, follow him, even to the point that they would die. You see, a, a, a fool, a fool follows a man that's weak. But a wise man, a wise man has no problems taking orders from another man or going into battle for another man as long as that man has proven strength and deemed himself worthy of that position. Watch Band of Brothers. It's what we've named our men's ministry after. Story of men going into World War II. Young American men, man, if they had a commander that was an idiot, who had had no combat experience, never fought, those men were not game about following that guy. But if you were a guy that had been in the platoon, a guy that had been hunkered down in the stone, Patton commanded respect. For what reason? He led the charge. People could see him. He had proven it. He had done it. And they rallied around him. Are you a wise man? Are you willing to receive the revelation that God provides? Act upon what you know to be true. Humble yourself and bow your knee to Jesus, knowing he's worthy and he's proven himself worthy of the position. A man of strength who by his very actions demands your allegiance. Or are you a fool? A foolish king. A man who while knowing the truth that Jesus is greater and more able than you, still pridefully resists the rightful heir to the throne because you just like power. The supporting cast of Christmas, each equipped with the same good news. In Bethlehem, a Christ had come, a savior for the world. The wise men from the east had seen a star that marked his birth. From far they came with exceeding joy to worship the king of kings. Although the wicked Herod knew the son of God had been born, he declined to come, proved bitter still, and refused to cede control the supporting cast of Christmas, the good news for us the same. When faced with Christ, the wise man bows or plays the foolish king. And so, Father, Lord, we just want to allow that word 
to settle into our hearts this morning.